I'm Tommy from Indiana. I'm Matt from Savannah, Georgia. I'm Jen from Oakland. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me and you. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know, there's been a recent rash of advice on the subject of how to be a man. It's come from all corners. Maybe it's fueled by uh, economic insecurities. Maybe it's fueled by social change. Rare among those doing the advising, though, has been, frankly, much qualification in that area. Uh, My guest... Glenn O'Brien, however, is flush with such qualifications. He's been the Style Guy columnist in GQ magazine for a number of years now. He's also had a distinguished career elsewhere in the magazine industry, serving recently as editorial director of uh, Brandt Publications, which publishes Interview, Art in America, and Antiques, among his many other jobs in magazines. In the early 1980s, in fact, he served as one of the first editors and art directors of Interview, a job which came to him through his involvement in Andy Warhol's factory. He was also the magazine's first music critic. He wrote the film Downtown 81, which was shot with Jean-Michel Basquiat in the early 1980s, but not released until just a few years ago, and he hosted the iconic new wave television program TV Party. His new book is called How to Be a Man, but it isn't really a book of advice. It's a collection of meditations, ranging from clothes to the utility of celebrity to the best ways to handle one's dotage. Uh, Glenn O'Brien, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Oh, hi, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you on. So tell me a little bit about um, why you wanted to write this book after, you know, you've been, you've been, you've been the style guy for uh, 10 or 12 years now. Right. Well, you know, I have a following, so I thought that I should do something that they would want. Um, and, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't want to just do uh, answer questions. I thought this is a good excuse or uh, a cover for writing a book of essays. So, um, you know, I'm now familiar with what men want to know because I get a set of questions every month. And uh, so I just kind of took it from there. You know, I, I get these kind of questions in my email, too, from one of my other jobs as uh, the writer of this blog called Put This On. And I find myself wondering whether we are living in a uh, living in an unusual time generationally. And I think you're 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 just at the age to have had some perspective both on the huge generational shifts of the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s uh, when you were a kid and the generational shifts in the post-90s era as alternative kind of, as people ran out of things to be an alternative to. Um, how, do you see, how do you see where these people stand that, that are writing to you? Well, I think that a lot of people uh, sort of maybe didn't have the a complete parenting experience. Um, you know, I think my uh, parents were not TV babies. I was from the sort of first generation of TV babies, and we weren't just propped up in front of the tube, and, ex- you know, it wasn't expected that that would raise us. But I think that might have 
become the way uh, kids are raised, that, that there's less uh, effort and less thoroughness in preparing men, boys, to be men, or, you know, and men to deal with the complexities of the world. I think people of my generation were kind of given some sense of occasion, some sense of cultural diversity that I don't know if it's extinct, but I'd say it's endangered at this point. You write a little bit about the uh, in the book about the effect that your grandmother had on you gaining that kind of sense of occasion. She was, yeah, she was a good coach, and you know, she uh, she kind of laid down the rules as she understood them, which might not be the same rules that I observe, but uh, I respect them, and uh, some of them I still follow. What did you think of the rules when you were like a, a, a teenager growing up in, if I'm not mistaken, Ohio? Yeah. Um, I, I had mixed feelings about rules because I think I was, uh, you know, a rebel. I wanted to be a beatnik. So certain rules uh, I was fine with, you know, I guess like aesthetic rules. But social rules, I felt like it was time for a change. Did you grow up thinking of yourself as someone who was going to sort of get out of Dodge as soon as he could? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I used to watch shows like What's My Line and I've Got a Secret, and they, these were like panel uh, quiz shows. They were sort of like reality shows, I guess, but uh, they would have interesting people on, and there would be panels of like New York wits who hung out at uh, El Morocco and the Stork Club, and they would say very clever things, and I always thought, that's what I want to do. I want to go to New York and be one of them. I read somewhere, um, I can't re- remember where right now, that uh, as a kid, you actually got your parents to take you to the stork club and wait outside while you went in and socialized. Yeah, I, I realized I had very little chance if they tried to enter with me. So I said, <laughs> wait here. And I, I, I went in and the, the maitre d' was very charmed and uh, took me around to every table and introduced me. It was really great. I, I like the idea that you thought you had a, that you thought you had a chance just solo. Well, I was pretty cool, you know. I was like well dressed, and I knew what was going on. I was I was a hipster. I knew who Walter Winchell was. So why not? It's it's really wonderful. When, when did you first come to New York? I think that happened when I was around 11. My stepfather was with the phone company. He was always being transferred somewhere or other. And luckily for me, New Jersey. we lived in New Jersey for two years. And that was like a highlight because I was almost there. And, you know, I got to go into Manhattan and, you know, see jazz and uh, go to art museums and, you know, see people that I never would have encountered, I think, in, in Ohio. How do you think having a, a stepfather who was transferred around affected who you were at, like as an adolescent? Well, I think anybody who's like an army brat or, you know, who a corporate brat or whatever who moves around, you, you become more self-reliant. You can't just, you know, hang with your posse for life. You've got to audition every time you uh, make a move. Tell me a little bit about uh, the move that you made. When did you first come to the big city for keeps? Well, I knew that I wanted to end up in New York, but I wound up going to college in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown. And I planned to move to New York, you know, as soon as I could. And so I I wound up um, going to grad school at Columbia University School of the Arts in the film department. And, you know, that was... uh, 
my first opportunity to be a New Yorker. This was like the 1970s, if I'm if I'm, my math is right in my head. Yeah, I arrived in 1970. I sort of immediately fell into this job working for uh, Andy Warhol. I, I want to talk about Warhol in a second, but but first I want to ask you, where did you stand in relation to the counterculture as it was in the late 1960s? as a guy who, as an 11-year-old, was able to converse with people about Walter Winchell? Well, you know, I was I, up on my beatnik literature, and, um, you know, I was a jazz fan at a really early age. That was a, another, like, adventure I had when I was little, was I made my parents take take me to... They drove me to the Cleveland Jazz Festival, and uh, I was probably the only... I was one of the few whites and probably the only one under 13 years old that was in attendance. <laughs> so, you know, I was into Cannonball Adderley and, and uh, Jimmy Smith and all that stuff. So, you know, that that kind of went into the whole folky thing and Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones and all that. So, yeah, and I was chomping at the bit of hipness, you know. Did you have like a plan for yourself when you got to New York? Well, I wanted to make films, you know. I was like a huge fan of Godard and Melville and, you know, the French New Wave and Italian filmmakers like Fellini and Pasolini and then also Andy Warhol. So I wanted to make films and, uh, you know, I got sidetracked. When did you meet Andy Warhol and, and how did you meet him? Well, I was uh, at Columbia with a classmate of mine from Georgetown named Bob Colicello, who has become a well-known writer since then. He's now a a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. And Bob and I were um, sort of the stars of the uh, film writing, I mean the criticism writing class at Columbia. And our teacher, Andrew Saras, was the main critic and film editor of The Village Voice. And he would let his better students write for The Voice and as like stringers. And I wrote about things like El Topo and um, Pink Flamingos. And Bob reviewed, uh, I think it was Andy Warhol's Flesh, and gave it a glowing review and compared Andy to uh, Michelangelo and I guess Joe D'Alessandro to uh, David or something like that. (laughs) But they were looking for somebody who could run this magazine that they'd had for nine months and it had a different editor for every issue so they were looking for a stable young clean-cut college kids and we fit the bill and we knew about movies and it was a movie magazine then so um, they made Bob an offer and Bob said okay but I'm gonna need help so can I hire my friend Glenn and I went and met Andy and I guess I passed muster um, and uh, there we were in business doing a magazine, which we had to learn by doing. I think it's really interesting uh, the idea of um, the idea of being the the responsible party of an irresponsible venture, if that makes any sense. To be the clean cut college kids that are brought in to be uh, uh, to be the straight arrows that nonetheless get it. Well, I think that it. At that point, there was a lot more, uh, I mean, I know a lot of kids now who are like, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, and they're still trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up. But we were like driven. 
And I think that we grew up like watching the little rascals, like, let's put on a show, you know, let's build a theater. Uh, I think there was just a feeling that anything was doable if you um, applied yourself to it. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Glenn O'Brien. He's the style guy in GQ magazine. He's also the author of How to Be a Man, a guide to style and behavior for the modern gentleman. I wonder if you could compare yourself as a a very young man, especially in terms of style and comportment and and identity, uh, to where you are now. Well, I wear the same kind of clothes that I liked then, now, I think. Because, you know, fashions come and go, but uh, I sort of like, you know, I was really a modernist, I think. So when the hippies came in, I had hair, you know, down past my shoulders and, and a beard like Jesus. But I was also wearing a Tweed Brooks Brothers jacket because it just seemed <laughs> like that's what you wore if you were a modernist. You know, I didn't want to dress like a, a goth or a, an American Indian. I mean, I just would have felt ridiculous. You know, I think that that's a good life choice is to, you know, find something you like and stick with it. It seems like the symbolism of that mode of dress that was, you know, that came about in the 1950s and 60s on college campuses and was about the, like a simple, comfortable version of, um, of traditional tailored clothing changed a lot between the time when you probably started wearing those clothes and say the 1980s when the preppy revival happened and now 25 years after that. Um, tell me a little bit about how your relationship to that aesthetic changed. Well, I think in my life there have been two periods of what I would call aberration in men's fashion. Uh, the first was sort of the uh, polyester era, when, um, which kind of followed close on the, on the hippie era. And um, there's a great example of it in that that movie with um, uh, Johnny Depp and uh, uh, Pee Wee Herman. Um, I think it's Blow, right? And, yeah. And it, these spectacularly um, bad taste leisure suits that actually look kind of good on those guys. But I mean, you were thinking like, where is this coming from? And it lasted for a, a, a very short period. Then in the, I guess in the late 90s, late in the 80s, early 90s, we sort of went Italian and the power suit came in, the Wall Street power suit, which had enormous shoulders and very blousy trousers with multiple pleats. And uh, I don't know, I, I think it was when guys were really trying to show off and, you know, starting to wear like watches that cost $50,000 and drive cars that look like um, electric razors and things like that. Um, and thank God that's over. Those suits are kind of an odd mix of that assertion of power that's implied and or explicit in the power suit, right? Those huge shoulders. And then this expression of like 
but I, I don't really care about anything. I'm so relaxed with the really with the really droopy, uh, really droopy lapels and huge balloony pants. Yeah, it's funny because it, it actually coincided with the period when a lot of people started working out. So the shoulders kind of looked even more ridiculous because you had shoulders on top of shoulders. And um, you would see athletes like Michael Jordan wearing a suit like this, and it made their head look like a, a tomato or something. I want to ask you how you've seen uh, the identity of masculinity change um, in this 30 years or so that you've been uh, either in the business or uh, connected to the business um, from the from the late 70s through today. Well, I think that we've evolved culturally in, in a lot of ways that, uh, you know, I might not have expected to happen in my lifetime. And I think that, you know, thankfully men today aren't so hung up on their sexuality and, you know, trying to prove that they're a red-blooded, uh, you know, um, woman chaser. So I think that personality and cultural identity are, aren't, aren't so hung up on that stuff. It's, uh, today you, you really can't tell who's gay and who's straight. And I think that's, you know, that's a good thing. I thought it was really interesting that your, um, that your style guy column, uh, was originally, it, when it was originally conceived, uh, was going to be called something like ask your gay friend, um, until you were picked to write it and everyone was like, well, we can't say that, uh, Glenn Strait. Yeah, it, and that was like um, quite a few years before uh, um, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy came on. Um, but, yeah, it was sort of a, a stereotype, I think. You know, straight men are clueless about, um, you know, interior decor, clothes, cooking, etc. And so, um, you know, they have to learn all this stuff to learn. And, you know, things like that are, I think, encouraged by shows like Sex in the City, you know, where, um, you know, there's always conflict between, you know, the men and women and the, and the, the, the gay guy is like the sidekick of, of the posse of chicks. And I don't know, it's all kind of silly. But thankfully, we're going back to a more kind of renaissance idea of, of manhood where, you know, we're not just specialists who, you know, work on our computers and, you know, build bridges and uh, do man manly things. We do all the things that are important in culture. You know, I mean, we're, we've, I think we're getting back to being generalists again, and, and that, that's a great thing. We'll get back to my conversation with GQ's style guy, Glenn O'Brien, in just a minute. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, public radio, International. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by VG Kids, printers of t-shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble-rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at vgkids.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Glenn O'Brien. He's the author of How to Be a Man, A Guide to Style and Behavior for the Modern Gentleman. 
you have a really, uh, I, I thought, funny and charming and, and eloquent description of uh, the fop, and I would say defense of the dandy in your book. Tell me a little bit about what you like about dandies, and, and also why you why you chose the word dandy to describe the thing that you like, and discarded a variety of of other uh, adjectives. Well, I think it had to do with like really finding out where the dandy came from. And I I think that people, if you say the word dandy, people think of someone who uh, spends too much time thinking about how they look and is very fussy and uh, extravagant and maybe is the kind of person that you would crane your neck after if, you know, like, wow, did you see that? Um, But in fact, the original dandy movement was kind of a, uh, a movement away from frills and flourishes and and gold trim and extravagant colors. Uh, Bo Brummel, who was fr- the first, you know, so-called dandy, was the man who invented trousers, the mo- you know modern trousers, and who um, basically wore gray and black or tan, you know, instead of bright blue covered with you know gold uh, trim. So it's really kind of the opposite of what I think people think of it as. And it was really kind of a political movement where the middle class was coming into its own. And you didn't have to be a landed noble anymore to be somebody. You could just um, get by on the strength of your personality and your taste. Bobermull was was noted for his uh, advocacy of what we would now sort of think of as being almost a modernist aesthetic, something that's simple and clean and clear and to some extent uniform, especially compared to, you know, the gold brocade short pants or whatever people were wearing before. And that idea of the uniform was really, really strong in, um, in men's style, especially in the United States through the 1960s when I think the counterculture kind of exploded it. And I wonder how you feel about the idea of men's dressing as being an expression of of the uniform. Well, I think that in the the civilian uniform, there's a lot of latitude. There's plenty of room for Um, self-expression. I think in the 60s, we kind of went in costume because... Things were so screwed up and, you know, revolution was in the air. So, you know, everybody was thinking, oh, we have to be tribal or we have to be more like savages and 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 uh, shamans. Um, so there's this kind of explosion of uh, consciousness that was fueled by psychedelics and people just began to live out their fantasy. You look at the bands of the time and they're dressed like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone or Paul Revere and the Raiders. There was a tremendous fantasy element, but basically, you know, when you settle down, uh, you realize that, you know, we still have to work and we still have to, you know, make things happen and raise the family. So I think that this, this man's suit is a, is a great, modernist ideal in the same way that the Bauhaus building was. You know, it's efficient, but it's beautiful in its symmetry, and it relates nicely to the body. And, you know, nobody has come up really with a better idea. I mean, blue jeans are another great idea. Um, 
And now, you know, in sort of in the creative world, that's what guys wear. You know, they wear a sport coat and jeans. And that's another modernist costume that I think it just, you know, it works. And it says something about our culture at the moment. It seems like people who came after uh, that generation that exploded the uniform uh, are now coming of age. And in fact, the, the generation, the generation fully after the folks whose parents exploded the uniform. I'm, I'm one of them. I mean, my dad was, my dad and was, was a, a vet who came back and went to work in the anti-war movement. So needless to say, he was, he was not wearing a lot of Brooks Brothers sport coats. And although, although John Kerry probably was at the time. And the people who came up with those folks as their fathers are now, looking out at a landscape where they realize they can wear just about anything, but they're not, they don't have the tools to address that panoply of choices effectively. Um, How do you see things moving forward with these, with these folks that feel a little bit lost? Well, you have to educate yourself on on any subject. I mean, you aren't born knowing about like art, music, cooking, uh, you know, how to how to speak, how to write. Um, everything is a matter of like educating yourself. And I think you just have to kind of start with, what do I like? I think a lot of people have trouble um, with even that, which is one of the most basic decisions that we make hundreds of times every day what do i like you know it's just it's uh socratic know thyself you know figure it out um the uniform i think is can't comes out of the the whole corporate thing and a lot of it's about you know blend in keep your head down um and maybe you won't get fired but i think now we're at a time when People have lost their trust that the corporation is going to take care of them, you know, and into their dotage, and uh, the union is going to look out for them. I think now everybody realizes you, you kind of have to look out for number one. And so um, I think that's why we're seeing a sort of blooming of more individuality in the way men look. And that's a good thing. It's nice to hear you say that because when you speak with men's style experts they uh, they often have w- one of two things they have either a very well defined classicism you know if if you have for example alan flusser who you who you cite in the book and uh, who I, who i've interviewed before and is a great guy uh, and a incredibly knowledgeable guy Alan Flusser's aesthetic is defined around uh, a classicism that is, you know, built around 1939. Um, And if you go to, you know, J Press, you're going to get a classicism that's built around 1962 or 1960. And on the other side of it, you have people advocating a total fashion free-for-all that's uh, determined by, you know, runways uh, that change every year because people need to put new product on shelves. So how does a man balance between those two things? 
Well, there, there's a lot of choices out there, and and you kind of have to f- find, you know, what what is it that you put on that you know empowers you? You know, what makes you feel like better than anything else? And uh, you know, for some guys, it's going to be the uh, you know the uh, barbarian suit, you know, that looks like it's from you know, a, a, a costume epic. And uh, for other people, it's going to be the slim Tom Brown, you know, narrow lapels, sort of uh, post-Mad Men look. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's f- finding out, like, what works for you. And, uh, you know, for me, it's just, I like, a, uh, you know, what Andy, Andy said, the best look is a good plain look. And in a way, I like that because... You know, if you look closer, you can see, well, that's an interesting uh, tie or, or, oh, I like your Playboy Bunny um, cufflinks. But it's not going to, you know, you're not going to notice me from across the street. And that's like who I am. Well, Glenn, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Oh, it was great. Thank you. Glenn O'Brien is the author of How to Be a Man, A Guide to Style and Behavior for the Modern Gentleman. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White in Chicago. Special thanks this week to Jason Isaac at WNYC, who engineered our interviews on the New York side. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. If you want to download this show or any of our past interviews, you can do it for free at MaximumFun.org or in iTunes. Just search for The Sound of Young America. While you're at MaximumFun.org, I encourage you to check out all of our other programs like the comedy advice show, My Brother, My Brother and Me, the comedy judge program, Judge John Hodgman, and my own comedy talk show, Jordan, Jesse, Go. They're all at MaximumFun.org and they're all absolutely free. That's about it for us this time. See you next week on The Sound of Young America.